0: United States and the Soviet Union on a sheet of ice in Lake Placid, New York. Muller trying to turn, there's the left foot. What a tracking shot. Johnny Muller. If
1: you see a 9 9, Olga Corbett's won a gold medal. There it is. Five seconds left
2: in the game. You're listening to a podcast from Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, an online archive series showcasing the work of expert historians. I'm Vince Hunt and I'll be hosting the series, asking each guest to choose an important document or artefact they think is of great significance in the Cold War sports arena. Incidentally, if you like these shows, please share them with your friends and colleagues and rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps new listeners find us. The rivalry between the two great powerhouses of ice hockey, Canada and the Soviet Union, is a fascinating story, and one that comes to an amazing climax as the result of the period of detente in the Cold War, in 1972 to be exact, in a series of matches known as the Summit Series. In this podcast, you'll hear two experts on the drama of this series, and also the political moves behind the scenes to make it happen. The first speaker is Professor David MacDonald of the History Department of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who was an eyewitness to the incredible events on the ice. The second voice is Jim Hirschberg, Professor at George Washington University and the first Director of the Cold War International History Project at the Woodrow Wilson Centre. Before World War II, Canada was the dominant power in ice hockey. So how did the Soviet Union become so strong? Here's David MacDonald.
0: After World War II, as part of a general engagement of participation in international sport, which they traditionally shunned, the Soviet authorities turned, look at ice hockey, too, as a sport at which they think they can succeed. There's a legendary uh, trainer or coach named Anatoly Tarasov who looks at uh, the Canadian game. The Soviets, like a lot of Northern Europeans, had played a game that we call bandy in English or uh, hockey with a ball in Russian. and. Uh, And they decided, no, in order to uh, participate internationally, they had to master ice hockey. So they found a lot of former footballers, and uh, indeed one of the earliest stars of Soviet ice hockey was a guy named Cyril Bobrov, who was was an excellent uh, striker. Uh, for a couple of Moscow sides, but uh, also a brilliant skater and and excelled in both sports. Uh, They found a lot of footballers, and uh, uh, Tarasov described what he was doing in a a book he wrote called The Road to Olympus, and it was take the Canadian system, but to make it more refined, to make it strategically more sophisticated, because the lack of body contact in the international game to stress absolutely fundamentals like passing, passing combinations, skating, and the like. He Did uh, like a lot of, uh, he wanted to uh, introduce a scientific element into the game. And like a lot of Soviet uh, athletics uh, personnel, but Soviet artists and the like as well, this uh, pride in uh, bringing scientific method was to them a distinctive attribute of their system, as was, at least according to Tarasov's emphasis. the primacy of the collective endeavor over individual brilliance. Although that was always a struggle, uh, even when we thought the Soviet sides were uh, these automatons. So anyway, uh, by the mid-50s uh, Tarasov's efforts are beginning to bear fruit and Canadian sides, uh, uh, professional sides in the National Hockey League were uh, banned from participating in uh, International Ice Hockey Federation sanctioned events because they were professionals and this was an amateur pursuit. So. Uh, Canada had uh, sent just the, the I think it was usually the Allen Cup winner, the winner of the uh, senior so-called uh, uh, ice hockey championship for amateurs. And beginning in the 1950s, started to encounter resistance. Uh, they lost a couple of times, and that got Canadians' attention. Up until that point, Canadians hadn't paid attention. But uh, by the early 1960s, Soviet dominance in international amateur quote-unquote ice hockey is becoming unquestioned. The US wins a gold medal in 1960 and then um, after that Soviet dominance and Canadian frustrations start to mount. They try to put together teams of amateurs but the only amateurs you can put out are students, university students and in the Canadian system not even on scholarship they're doing it uh, strictly as and literally as amateurs for the love of the game. So Canada decides we're not going to participate in this farce anymore. By that time, interest is growing on both sides in uh, putting together some sort of exhibition, series of friendlies, in which uh, that would pit Canadian professionals against the Soviets. And there were several levels of reasoning here uh, uh, Canadian hockey pride, Canadian uh, or, organized hockey, they wanted to showcase once and for all the, uh, the indomitable sper- superiority of the Canadian game. Uh, the Soviets felt, no, they, they thought they had a serious chance. This was something they debated quite intensely uh, among themselves, and they thought they had a chance. Uh, but at the same time, it was the beginning of what we start to call dictante. after the, uh, uh, the, invasion, the Czech invasion of '68, uh, Different political leaders, including then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, are looking for ways to reach out and build bridges uh, uh... with uh... with the uh... with the other side and trudeau is motivated as well by uh... Uh, at that point, there's a huge national discussion on what does it mean to be a Canadian? What is Canadian identity? Uh, and m- much against his, uh, its own instincts and preferences, hockey is something that emerges, ice hockey is something that emerges as this. Um, but he also wanted to establish a certain amount of autonomy vis a vis the United States. This is a period when Canada is distancing itself from the involvement in Vietnam. Uh, it, uh, Trudeau reaches out to uh, the People's Republic of China, and it's at this time that uh, formal relations are established. And this overture to the Soviets also played into that. The Soviets welcomed the overture. And uh, by the spring of 72, we see the chance for a showdown, except nobody thinks it's going to be that. Uh, going into the late August 72, the Canadians, and I, I, was, uh, I was 17 at that point, uh, in a city called Saskatoon in western Canada, province of Saskatchewan, I wasn't even much of an ice hockey fan at that point, but I just knew, oh, it'll be good. Just finally put paid to all this uh, uh, Soviet amateur superiority nonsense, and uh, and we were all wondering, well, is it going to go? There were eight games scheduled: uh, four in Canada, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, Vancouver, and four in the uh, Soviet Union. Canada prides itself as you know the palace of ice
1: hockey, and uh, the Canadians uh, really felt that, you know, it was virtually a birthright, you know, that they would dominate the sport. But in the 20th century, as the Soviet Union moved along and and, and uh, aspired to global leadership, especially under Stalin, uh, hockey became quite popular in the Soviet Union. And uh, during Stalin's period and afterwards in, in the 50s, the Soviets began to emulate what they was widely called Canadian hockey, uh, using a puck, and... Um, And in the 50s, the Soviets began to compete internationally uh, and join the Olympic movement. And the Soviets got very good at it. And in the late 50s and into the 1960s, they began to win uh, almost regularly not only Olympic uh, gold medals in hockey, but also the annual international ice hockey championships. And this became sort of a bone in the Canadians' throat because the issue of amateurs versus professionals came to be very important in international ice hockey. Uh, under Olympic rules, only amateurs were allowed to play, and this clearly excluded the paid professionals of the National Hockey League, which, of course, included the best Canadian ice hockey players. However, under the technicalities of the uh, Olympic regulations, the Soviets and uh, the Czechs, for example, who were also very avid ice hockey players, were considered amateurs even though they received extensive state support. And for a while, this was fine with the Canadians because even their sort of third-rate club teams that were not professionals were able to successfully compete. But as the Soviets got better and better and began to dominate, the Canadians began to get more upset and complained loudly at what they considered these unfair rules. And by the late 1960s, the Canadians in protest Uh, even dropped out of international ice hockey competition, sort of leaving the field to the Soviets. They won nine consecutive international ice hockey championships at one point. But the Soviets were actually getting kind of bored, and their coach, Tarasov, began to complain that we want our best to play the Canadians' best. And this was seen not only as a clash of great hockey players, if it could happen, but a clash of obviously the two titans of the Cold War, the East and the West, um, but also different styles. The Soviets were seen as playing a more collective uh, style, emphasizing teamwork, passing uh, what we're as socialist values to emulate, whereas the Soviets depicted the Canadians as more thuggish, individualistic, goonish capitalists. And so this was more and more frustrating to hockey fans around the world and to Canadians and to Soviets that you could not, supersede this dispute over amateurs versus professionals and have a best versus best uh, clash. Now, everyone knows, and of course every Canadian knows, that finally this clash did happen. The so-called Summit Series of uh, 1972 took place, and this was an epic event. Uh, It involved four games in Canada, followed by four games in the Soviet Union. Uh, To the shock of Canadians, the the uh, Soviets defeated the Canadians uh, when they had their first match in the famed Montreal Forum and uh, took a three games to one lead uh, w- with one time. And yet the Canadians came back and won the last three games and won the final game with 34 seconds left, a goal by Paul Henderson. Every Canadian remembers that moment as the greatest moment in Canadian history.
0: I was a first year student at the University of Saskatchewan at that point. And, uh, we had a chemistry lab session. I was taking first-year chemistry. And go in, and the labs were four hours, and uh, we're all so dutiful that it's going to overlap the match time. But we go in, and the uh, teaching assistants, the lab techs, look at us, and they say, if you think we're doing chemistry today, you've got another thing. Come and get the hell out of here. They said in a much, uh, much stronger language. And uh, so everybody just dispersed. Um, and some people went to the pub, I went back to my parents' house, I was too nervous to watch it in company, right? And uh, But everybody knows where they were watching that game, like the papers were just flooded with uh, uh, commentary about uh, what this was going to mean, and uh, funnily enough, the guy in the Montreal newspaper kept a low profile, John Robertson, didn't say a lot, didn't, didn't say I told you so yet, uh, although he had the week before. The game is just, it's furious, end-to-end action, very intense. People are playing hockey, too. There's very little in the way of dirty play. They're really playing hockey, and it's for keeps, and uh, it's tie game. And with 34 seconds to go, Paul Henderson breaks through. He gets a pass from out of the corner, and he bangs on it once, doesn't go in, bangs on it again. And it goes in, and uh, the call. Uh, there was a legendary uh, sportcaster, sort of like Kenneth Wilson, home of Canadian sport, a guy named Foster Hewitt, who says uh, Henderson scores for Canada. And in uh, you know the news that night, they just show classrooms exploding. I know that uh, in my neighborhood, a residential neighborhood, detached dwellings, you could hear cheers going up and down the street. There was no traffic on the streets, and then everybody just. The streets filled. I ran to campus, my parents lived about 20 minutes away, ran to campus, it was just thronged. And the rest of the day, bars filled. That night they replayed the game and we all watched it in the bar downtown. And it was just as intense and exciting then as it had been that afternoon. But this incredible moment of expiation and relief. And our boys came back from behind. They showed that grit, an independent spirit and individualism and effort can overcome collectivism and the robotic, unemotional, et cetera, et cetera. It became a really bipolar story, binary story about ideology and systems. And ironically, it was not only did we, had we, you know, come out by the skin of our teeth, but looking back on it, it was a way we were playing a meaningful role in the Cold War. You know, you've got to remember this is a country that uh, by uh, by its own lights and by most lights, well, at the end of the Second World War, was probably the sixth or seventh most heavily armed country in the world, had demilitarized quickly, had uh, sort of settled back into being a second-tier power in this conflict that that was meaningful to a lot of Canadians uh, because, uh, say, in my part, Western Canada, a lot of my compatriots trace their ancestry to Ukraine or to uh, German, uh, to, uh, Mennonites, Anabaptist farmers who had settled in southern Russia or to, uh, uh, to parts of the Baltic or that the Russian fact was a real fact but uh, we had always been sort of on the sidelines and uh, it was a way that it really established in our own minds what we were and who we were and uh and he gave us a reputation in russia as something very different from the americans and for all that that series was uh very fraught that maple leaf became something really symbolically important to uh, russians of my generation that i went to study in leningrad three years later and i'd wear a maple leaf pin And it meant a lot. It meant meant you weren't American, it meant something different. There had been very pleasant memories of them. And it says something about Canadian history where uh, people's uh, defining moments, like if you're in my generation, you're American, where were you when Kennedy was shot?
1: The key event that led to the agreement to hurdle the deadlock that had blocked uh, this competition from taking place for years took place a year earlier when Soviet Premier Alexei Kosygin, visited Canada in October 1971 and this visit followed a visit to the Soviet Union by Canada's premier Pierre Elliott Trudeau and uh, Trudeau's visit uh, is is actually widely remembered uh, because uh, he brought along his new young wife Maggie um, and he cut a very dashing figure And this is a very successful visit but much to the surprise of Canadian diplomats Kosygin accepted with alacrity uh, a protocol invitation to play a reciprocal visit to Canada. And when he came to Canada, Canadian documents show that Hockey played a very interesting role in his visit. It's mostly remembered for what happened publicly, which is that Kosigan was dogged by protesters throughout his trip. In Ottawa, in Montreal, uh, in uh, Toronto, uh, protesters followed him everywhere, and even a protester... Uh, Hungarian émigré, still furious at the Soviets for invading his country in 1956, actually tackled uh, Kasigan at one point, jumped on his back. He had to be pulled off by Trudeau and, and police uh, on Canada's Parliament Hill. And actually, the photographs appeared on the front page of every paper in the country. But what turned out to be the highlight of Kosygin's visit and his favorite moment was when he attended an NHL hockey game in Vancouver between the Vancouver Canucks and the Montreal Canadiens. And I discovered in the Canadian archives that this event had been debated privately for weeks before the trip because Siegen's representatives thought he might be too tired. It was on the same evening after he had flown across Canada from Montreal to Vancouver. He was exhausted. It, I discovered in the archives that actually in the hotel... Uh, In Vancouver, he said he did not want to go to the game, both because he was exhausted and also because he feared that protests would disrupt the game. The Canadians, uh, who Trudeau had designated to accompany him, begged with him, said everything was arranged. They pleaded with him. He finally agreed to go. And much to his shock, he received an extremely warm welcome, a standing ovation from the Vancouver crowd. Uh, he had a fascinating meeting before the game with the captains of the Vancouver and Montreal Hockey Club. In fact, there's a great moment I discovered uh, from Vancouver newspapers. Everyone remembers the kitchen debate between Richard Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev in 1959. There was a locker room debate in uh, Vancouver between Alexei Kosygin and Henri Richard, the captain of the Montreal Canadiens, the who was known as the pocket rocket because he was the uh, younger brother of the famous Maurice Richard, the rocket, the the most famous goal scorer in NHL history until that time. And they debated whose hockey was better, Soviet or Canadian. And uh, Kasigan said uh, Soviet hockey was, and... Richard said well maybe you'll beat us at first but when we get used to you we, we can beat you and uh it, it was very interesting and very friendly debate uh Richard presented uh Kasigan with a, a stick with, and there are photographs of Kasigan testing the stick he also received a pair of of CCM skates uh, and and uh talked about his enthusiasm but what's most interesting is that when he watched the hockey game which the Canadians won 6 to nothing you know, the, the Canadians were uh were a perennial Stanley Cup contenders. The Vancouver Canucks were an upstart new expansion team uh, just in their second season. Uh, they got cream. Um, Kosygin sat with the Vancouver general manager and they discussed what, a sh- uh, and as Kosygin put it, what a shame it was that our best hockey players can't play against each other. And he admitted that he couldn't even really explain or defend the distinction between amateurs and professionals that had prevented those teams from playing. And he promised to look into uh, the problem and see what he could do. And it so happened that Kosygin's visit also coincided with something very important that I discovered, which is that just before his visit, the Soviet coach had published an article in Sovetsky Sport, the leading Soviet sports journal, this is Tarasov, um, challenging the NHL to play. What are you afraid of? He said. You know, your best against our best. And this was uh, something that even might have gone a little bit out of channels because most Soviet sports and hockey authorities or apparatchiks were loath to play the Canadians yet because the Olympic. Committee chair, Avery Brundage, had warned that not only could professionals not compete in the Olympics, but that any players who played against the Canadian professionals would be tainted, and they would not be allowed to participate. And the Olympics were coming up in Sapporo, Japan, in February 1972, and the Soviets did, wanted to do nothing that might endanger winning another gold medal in Sapporo, which, in, in fact, they did. But Tarasov was so eager, he said, we want to play the Canadians one way or another. When Kosygin returned to Moscow after his trip to Canada, which uh, which uh, he told Canadians that the hockey game was the highlight of, even though he had been ambivalent about attending until the very last moment, I discovered, he didn't just uh, sit back. He clearly acted because a few weeks later, the Soviet embassy in Ottawa secretly approached the Canadian government and said, hey, our, one of our best teams... Will be in North America in December. How about it plays several games against Canadian professional teams of the NHL in January 72? And this would have even been before the Olympics in Sapporo the next month. So theoretically, it could have endangered those players' right and eligibility to compete in the Olympics. The Canadians. Thought that was impractical because it was in the middle of the NHL season; it would be too complex. But they they gave a counterproposal: let's have a best versus best series before the beginning of the 1972 NHL season, meaning in September '72, which is exactly what took place. And uh, in the end, the final agreement to hold that series was not reached until the spring of '72, actually in Prague at the annual World Championship Ice Hockey Tournament, which the Canadians boycotted sent some representatives to meet with Soviet representatives. Um, and most of the historiography, all of, most of the existing accounts, in fact, all of the existing accounts that have been published in Canada, and there are many books about the 72 series, only talk about the agreement to stage the series being reached in the spring of 1972. But my research has shown is that it was really the fall of 71 and Kosygin's trip which was also tied in with fascinating Cold War currents, uh, the triangular diplomacy between the United States and China and the Soviet Union, uh, detente with the United States. Uh, There were multiple motives at play when Kosygin visited Canada, but hockey entered into the calculations, and the wider context influenced the hockey because it was clearly a way uh, both to enhance Soviet relations with the West in a cultural soft power way that coincided with the detente of that period. In fact, the highlight of detente took place in May 72 when Richard Nixon visited Moscow and signed a series of arms control treaties. Um, But it was also a way for the Soviets to try to sort of cultivate the Canadians. Uh, Trudeau had famously expressed some resentment about American domination of Canadian life when he visited uh, the Soviet Union in uh, May 1971. And this was a way for the Soviets to sort of like try to upstage the, the Chinese initiative of Richard Nixon and say, hey, we can, we can play with your, your neighbor and, and have good relations, even while you're playing with our neighbor uh, in the communist world. And so uh, while sports historians have understandably focused on the drama that took place on the ice uh, during the games of the Summit series... Uh, I found that there was also quite a fascinating uh, backstory to how the summit series took place in the first place and how it really broke the ice and enabled regular competitions to take place for the rest of the Cold War and the rest of the existence of the Soviet Union for the next two decades uh, between the best Soviet ice hockey players and other Soviet black ice hockey players, especially the Czechs, and the best Canadian and NHL, and for that matter, uh, other leagues, uh, professional players, and, you know, really revolutionized the way the two sides related on the ice during the Cold War.
0: The big argument during the 70s and the 80s and first part of the 90s was who was better, Canada or the Soviet Union, and that was the rivalry. I don't think it's as strong a strong rivalry now. Now it tends to be more Canada than the United States. Uh, Russia's trying to come back together, But uh, uh, but that was a product, you know, in a sense the ideological critique was right that, these players were full time professionals. They they spent more time with the game than uh, certainly their professional counterparts in North America did, uh, and but they were also in a system, right? Uh, very strong, powered by one coach. The loss against Canada in 1972, started introducing fault lines in play. What we didn't understand was these players themselves had personalities, agendas. There had been a lot of controversy in putting together the Soviet team. A couple of the best players were left off because of the, the personal uh, dislike of the coach. The c- person who was supposed to coach wasn't uh, allowed to coach for all sorts of reasons of politics and temperament. We never understood that. In, you know, We were seeing it through a Cold War lens. Um, you start to see more and more of that appear in Soviet hockey over the ensuing two decades and and now it 's probably an obstacle to them being a really potent force in international ice hockey is they 're always there, but uh, I don't know, once they 've tasted the flesh pots of Philadelphia or whatever uh, uh, they're not they 're not as amenable to a certain approach to
2: coaching as their forebears were. You've been listening to a podcast from the series Key Moments in Cold War Sports History, a project bringing together experts from around the world and hosted here on the Wilson Centre's online digital archive at digitalarchive.org.